You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Bengals podcast. I am Anthony Cazenza. It's great to be with you all once again, talking some Cincinnati Bengals. We are now officially in full, full offseason swing that the Super Bowl is behind us, and we will talk about some thoughts about that game, how it pertains to the Bengals. We'll do some uh, season awards this week, and we will talk about a couple of prospects that we have been looking at going forward for the draft that uh, may interest the Cincinnati Bengals. But welcome to the program this week, however you may be joining us, whether it's through our YouTube channel, whether it's through the Cincy Jungle Facebook page or CincyJungle.com. We appreciate you joining us and we want to hear from you. So uh, if you got questions, comments, we're not not taking questions for this show. We're going to do a separate listener question show this week. But um, hey, converse amongst yourselves. That's what the live chat's for as you join us. And speaking of joining us, as always, I am flanked by my partner in crime, John Sheeran. John, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good, man. I gave uh, Randall a wardrobe change. He's now gone, oh, from yeah. Bengals, gone from the Bengals skeleton to the guy that the Bengals are going to draft in, I think, 78 days now. So 78 very long, very merciful days. So the countdown has officially begun into draft season, and I kind of want to put myself in a cryo freezer and just fast forward until that time. <laughs> He's got your uh, kind of your hand-me-down clothes. It seems like you know you wore it once or twice, and then uh... Uh, you, you know what the story of that is that because I went down to the the Cincy shirts place where I got the shirt, yeah. and I, and I asked them if I could, if I because I originally ordered the shirt online to have it delivered, and I asked them if I could just get it in store, and they said they canceled my online order and they gave me a shirt in store, but then this shirt shows up like three days later, and I, and I the the the, the charge is already canceled on it, so I was debating whether not to be a good Samaritan just bring it back, but I'm thinking you know what. I'll just put it up here and give it give it some more publicity. So, so you got a free you got a free Joe Burrow shirt. I got a free Joe Burrow shirt. We, I, you know what we, we we might we might give it away on this show. It's something okay. I haven't really thought about until now. But okay, put, guys, put put your thoughts in the comments if we should give give away the shirt because I've never well, done this. You know, I, I would I would ask for it, but I I'm venturing to guess that you wear a different size T shirt than I do. The, there, there is a mass size difference. Um, <laughs> uh, to, to say, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm very much petite standards for a 23 year old male. Are you, are you schmedium? Schmedium? Let's go. Let's go. Let's let's, let's call it small. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Actually, that, I, I think I think that is a medium. I think it okay. runs a little small, but okay. you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm a small human. Well, maybe we'll do something if you're if you are of the generous spirit, John. Um, maybe we will do something to, to give that away. If you feel so inclined, your call obviously is your shirt courtesy of since he shirts. Um, and and that, that, that's only if, you know, our listeners want to rob Randall of his only clothes. So mind you, like he gets cold too. It's yeah, so he'll, go, he'll go streaking during our show. If you take, if you take that shirt from him, but, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's good to be with you again, John. Good to be with everybody in the live chat. And 
Uh, we appreciate you. If you're unable to join us live, we appreciate you downloading the show, however you may get it, whether it's through YouTube, um, a number of audio platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Megaphone, Google Play, all that stuff, iHeartRadio. Um, so get the show how you can after the fact. Hey, even download it if you join us live. Double dip. It's it's fine. We like that stuff. So we appreciate the support. We appreciate you tuning in. Look, you guys have been awesome. I, I, before we kind of get into uh, the segments that we're going to talk about tonight, I just want to say that I am appreciative of our listeners because this is kind of the doldrums of the of the season. The month of, especially when the Bengals aren't in the postseason, you know, you got January and you got February. You know, it's not free agency. It's not the draft yet. You're kind of in a little bit of the doldrums of the offseason. But you guys have keep joining us. You keep tuning in live. You keep interacting with us. And we really can't thank you enough for, for the support of this program. It really makes it a pleasure to go on the air and, and talk Cincinnati Bengals football with you all and, of course, with you, John. So just want to give you all a little uh, pat on the back for giving us your support. We appreciate that. John, I watched, as we mentioned before the the show here, before we took the air, I watched the Super Bowl in a little bit of a different venue than I usually do. But... Watched it nonetheless. Kansas City Chiefs came kind of charging back. Pretty good game, I thought. Pretty entertaining game, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, right. It, was, it, was a, it was a one, one score game up until the very end. And then, you know, the Chiefs did what they did. But that, that it, it was quick and it was fast, but it was fun, which is a lot more we could say about last year. Yeah. So, you know, I think we still, regardless of what the Bengals do this offseason, I think realistically, the Bengals, pro- I, I, they could make a jump like the 49ers made, right? I mean, it's it's possible, but you know, I, I think some, uh, I think a lot of things will need to fall their way in order for that to happen. But you know, looking at that and looking at these two teams, it, it, to me, it was it was the quarterback and the flash of the Chiefs versus the well-rounded team of the 49ers. And then it was kind of a, you know, it was also the coaching aspect, the young guy that, you know, exciting and inexperienced versus the old guy who's been there and done that. Um, the quarterback and the, and the experienced coach won the day. But there are takeaways to be had from a Cincinnati Bengals perspective of both of these teams. I, I want to kind of ask and put this out to you. What were some of the things, whether it's strictly from the Chiefs, strictly from the 49ers, maybe something from both teams, what were some of those takeaways as you as you saw that game unfold that you could say, you know what, here's one or two things that the Bengals should look at implementing, look at doing this offseason to really, you know, aside from the usual, of course, general general manager and beef up the scouting staff, of course, we know all that. I'm talking about a little bit, diving a little bit more heavily into the weeds and specifics based on what we saw from both of these teams and how the Bengals could make a a big turnaround next year by following their blueprints. My dad was the first person I've ever heard say there are multiple ways to skin a cat. I didn't really <laughs> understand what it meant when I was like 10 years old, but there, there are multiple ways of building a successful winning football team. And like you said, the 49ers and Chiefs kind of deviate in terms of the strategies, in terms of how to get there. But at the end of the day, what we saw was that the team with the better quarterback won because the team with the better quarterback could rely on that quarterback to make plays while the other quarterback missed a lot of plays. And that was ultimately why the 49ers lost that game and blew that lead. I know a lot of people point to Kyle Shanahan for being outscored like 
46 to nothing in the last two fourth quarters that he's been in the Super Bowl with. But he, he called a fantastic game. That was why the 49ers were up for as long as they were, and they were able to limit you know the amount of damage that Jimmy Garoppolo could do. And he made some good throws in this game, but at the end of the day, he's always been a limited quarterback, and they can only do so much with him there. And the, the team with the better quarterback won. Now, like, like you said, the Chiefs, they went out of their way these past two years to build the best possible offense around Patrick Mahomes, who is the best quarterback in the NFL, who can do the most out of any quarterback in the NFL, who can throw from any platform, who can create plays out of structure. And they just built an offense that was predicated around speed, explosive playmakers on the wide receivers, the tight ends, the running backs all over the field in the passing game to stretch the field vertically and let Mahomes do his thing outside the pocket and work and work in cohesion with him. Now, like, and now you look at the 49ers who are kind of like a, some type of dichotomous relationship going on because they have such an all around well, well built team, but they are dealing with a quarterback who at the time signed the biggest contract in, in NFL history for a quarterback. So it was kind of like, you know, they didn't have a lot of, you know, real money to re- really work with with that Jimmy Garoppolo deal, but they still went out of their way to, you know, get, get acquire guys in free agency, but they just drafted extremely well. And that's honestly like for the 49ers, that's the takeaway that the Bengals do. Like when you draft well and you compensate with quality free agents, you, you can you can get by even with you know mediocre or just meddling quarterback play, and you can win 13 games. You can be the the number one senior conference, and you can sk- you know scathe by in, in the playoffs with only two games. But I, I think the common denominator the common denominator with both these teams is that they kind of built their teams with a plan in mind. And that with, with the 49ers, it was speed literally everywhere on the field, and defense on offense, with the offensive line, with the wide receivers, the running backs. The common denominator is speed. There's nobody. In the NFL, not even the Chiefs can attack the, can attack that defense or can stop that offense when they go horizontal. The Chiefs tried to do this early in the game, and Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy adjusted, and they went more ver- and they went more vertically, and they allowed Mahomes to get more into his comfort zone into the second half. But you know, both of these teams, when they acquired when they acquire players and when they you know scout players in the draft, they have a s- specific plan in mind in terms of what type of team that they want to be. And I think that's kind of been lost with the Bengals for the past three years. They try to get cute with some of these players, but None of their drafts, I think, fit an overall theme of what they want to be. And it's a lot of, you know, random types of talents being acquired all over the draft. And obviously, the lack of presence in free agency compounds on onto that. But I think both of those teams had an identity, had a plan of what they wanted to do. And they just had the right personnel and coaching to match it. And that's that's how they got to that point. But at the, at the end of the day, like like we all know, the team with the better quarterback has the better chance of winning the game. And when now the entire NFL has to go through Pat Mahomes, who's the best quarterback, and you know, Andy Reid has now proven that he can do this at the biggest stage and he's going to go to the Hall of Fame because of it. So they're going to be a tough, they're going to be a juggernaut to stop from, from this point going forward. But they got here because they had a plan of, of how to build this team around him and they maximized it in the window that they did because now they got to pay him a lot. They're not going to have the, the opportunities to, you know, sign some of these guys to these contracts that they did in the past couple of years. But they had a plan and they had a plan set. And I think that's the, 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 the biggest piece the Bengals need to achieve this offseason. So just a quick side note um, and a personal story. My wife and her family own a, a small chain of women's retail clothing stores. Andy Reid's wife and Andy Reid shop at my, my wife's family's stores. Um, so while I didn't really, I, I, had a, I had a very good friend, one of my best friends, it was a 49ers guy, and I kind of wanted to see him happy despite the history of the 49ers and Bengals. I also kind of had a little uh, rooting interest for Andy Reid, just kind of a personal story. And uh, by the way, my wife has met both he and Andy Reid's wife, and they are uh, a supposedly delightful, wonderful, nice people. So uh, if you had some bad thoughts about Andy Reid, um, I have a somewhat firsthand experience saying that he is a 
he's a very nice guy. And I, I think we all could probably catch on to that in interviews and stuff. Anyway, totally besides the point of what we're talking about, but I had to kind of, had to kind of put that story out there. I'm sharing a screen, John. This was one of the things that I thought about. I, I, I thought a, a, about a handful of things here. You look at what the 49, and this is the 49ers draft classes. And really I, I, you know, we could look at what the chiefs, the chiefs draft classes over the past handful of years as well. But really when I, to me, these picks and these draft classes are the ones that kind of precipitated their turnaround this year. And you look at it and what is it? First of all, you look at the volume, right? It's not, it's an average of nine picks per year over the, over the three years. Um, so there's volume there. Of course, they weren't very good for a, a couple of years. So they had the high picks. McGlinchey is a very good player. You see him the, the, the first round pick in 2018, of course, Bosa this year, very good player. Debo Samuel, very good player. I mean, the, the hits go on and on and on and on and on, right? I mean, they, they, they have a lot of hits in there. Of course, there's the, the infamous Reuben Foster thing. But um, there, there are all kinds of other players that have performed pretty well for them. But it's also the volume. And I think part of uh, the reason I bring this up is the Bengals are, are sitting with a lower amount of picks than they're usually accustomed to this year. Yeah, they have the high ranking in terms of where they where they sit for picks, but they don't have the volume. And when you talk about needing potentially some interior linemen and edge rushers, you need some some meat at linebacker, some talent there. You've got questions at cornerback. You're going to have a, a quarterback that's drafted. Offensive line issues, questions at wide receiver. There are a lot of issues going on. You have a team that is a little bit free agency adverse. They'll probably do a little more than we are accustomed to this year in terms of unrestricted free agency. Jeff Hobson of Bengals.com recently said that, but I still don't think they're going to go after the B plus a minus tier guys in outside free agency. I think they're, they're going to go after the, the C's and, and maybe B's type of guys and, you know, maybe not break, break the bank. So I think they need to collect picks, whether that's trading players and getting capital there, whether it's trading back maybe from the top pick in the third round, top pick in the second round, collecting more picks in those middle rounds. Um, you know, I, I think they need they need they need players and they need talented players. They need to hit on them. So they they need volume and they need quality. So uh, you know, that's is something that stuck out to me in terms of one of the, especially when the team does so much in the draft, you know, and, and they put so much stock in the draft. Uh, you know, I, the other thing I, I, as I watched the game, early in the game, you, you know, you have Debo Samuel, this physical wide receiver, a rookie guy, and right away, Kyle Shanahan is getting him involved. And, and you kind of say, well, that's, the, you know, big, big stage, biggest stage really in sports. And you, you give the ball to a rookie and you do it in a way that really isn't his, I mean, he's good at it, but it's not his forte in the, in jet sweeps and, and runs and, and things of that nature, not passes. Uh, so it kind of got me thinking a little bit. And I was thinking about the fact that the 49ers drafted guys and, and their coach selected guys that were picked for specific plays, specific designs in their system. Debo Samuel's not the fastest guy. He he's he's not, you know, going to stretch the field very often. He's a guy who'll move the sticks, who'll get tough yards 
and he'll make plays. If you watched the Super Bowl, that's exactly what he did. That is exactly what he did. And what they said when they drafted this kid, I would assume in their war room, is they said, you know, this kid is going to bring this to the table, and this is specifically how we're going to use this player. And that's why we're selecting him here, and that's what he's going to do in our offense. I would like to think that the Bengals do that in their war room. I don't I don't know because it's it almost seems sometimes that it's like, hey, this guy's when they do the best player available strategy, which Duke Tobin recently told you about at the senior bowl, John, it's almost like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna find we're gonna find a role for this guy because he's so talented. Not right. not necessarily this is a player that is designed for our system. And we have this type of role carved out for this player. Maybe Zach Taylor and company ha- will have that sort of vision, especially with a full offseason under their belt, which they didn't have last last year. But I would like to see the Bengals draft, and and, and really it raises their hit probability uh, on these rookies. If you if you carve out an early plan for these guys, and you say this is, and, and maybe to us it looks like a reach or whatever, but. If you have a specific design plan for the for the players you're taking, especially with the high picks, I, I think it really bodes well for your franchise. And really, it makes you look like a really intelligent coach, really intelligent team when you select players and right away you have a niche carved out for them. Not just, you know what, this is the best player that's sitting here. We don't need this position, but we'll take it and we'll figure out a, a role for him because this guy's so talented. Yeah, that works out sometimes, but not all the time. And to me, I think that that is something that the Bengals really need to work on this year, especially after getting so little out of their first draft class in the Zach Taylor era. So those those are a couple of things that came to mind for me. And of course, the quarterback reigns supreme. You, you mentioned this, and you know you, you got to get that guy. Garoppolo to me made some plays, but I, I knew that if they if they had the lead and the lead wasn't a huge huge lead. I knew Mahomes would do his thing. Even though it wasn't a Mahomes-like performance throughout most of the game, he made plays with his legs. He extended plays. He threw. He made the clutch throws when it mattered down the road, and, and the quarterback play still reigns supreme. Those are my takeaways as it pertains to this game and what the Bengals may need to look at doing next year. It all comes back to just having a plan. And I think with the 49ers and the, those draft classes that you brought up, a lot of those picks were very unconventional, and it got your head scratching a little bit. Like, what, what is John Lynch doing? What is he, what exactly is he seeing in, in in these players? But like you said, when you when you have a plan about what you want to do with these guys, immediately putting them into the system, a system that the coaching staff and the front office is confident in in terms of functionality. When you have the pieces already there, and these guys can come in and be complementary pieces, and not put too much weight on their shoulders, but knowing their strengths and having a, a grasp of what they are in terms of evaluation standpoint, there's a difference in terms of confidence in what, you know, we, we see other teams, you know, have when they draft players in terms of the Bengals, because it's just a, the difference of, of brain power in, in the decision-making process in the war room and in the overall evaluation process. When the 49ers draft these guys in the middle rounds that maybe, you know, can be classified as reaches or whatnot, they're, they're quality players because, you know, they're, they're high-tier athletes. They're going to be able to mesh into the NFL world better than some other some other guys who maybe can, are, are more 
efficient in terms of technical prowess, but they put these guys in comfortable positions to win. Like, like you said, the, the, the whole Debo Samuel um, schematic change in the beginning, that, that's just, that's just what confident and quality play callers can do. They, they recognize weaknesses and whatever defenses they're going up with, and they can have a certain, you know, tendencies for the first 18 games of the season of what they do offensively. And then they come out with something completely different And the chiefs did that too. I think with their first touchdown, they put a play from like the 1940s and like the Rose bowl. And, and that's how they score the first touchdown or whatever. And right. like, that's just that's just Andy Reid doing his thing. That's just Kyle Shanahan doing his thing as well. So when when they build these teams, you know they recognize okay, high tier athletes obviously is is, is critically important. The, the the kind of production that they had in college, not necessarily the total volume production, also matters in terms of context and what they can do. And I, I, again, like it it all comes down to just finding players who are good at you know it's kind of it kind of sounds cliche, but finding players to do good things for what they want to do. And it sounds very general when I, when I say it like that, but you know, not putting all the weight on their shoulders to contribute right away, but when they need them to do something, having a plan for them to just mesh into what the team already is. And that's having an identity of what the team is right now. The Bengals are, are still unsure what that identity is. And it's, it's due to lack of talent, obviously. And when you have an, you know, when you can infuse more talent into the team, it obviously helps. And going back to just this jump that you know people have alluded to because the 49ers were in the Senior Bowl last year, then they were in the Super Bowl. They were already re- really talented last year, but you know Garoppolo got hurt for like 13 games, so they had to play the backup quarterback, and that obviously derailed their season. And they lost a lot of one-score games as well. But it was in the, it was the process for three years of accumulating that talent, accumulating that identity, and it took one more draft class and then a healthy Garoppolo to really put put everything together. The Bengals aren't nearly there yet. They're they're going to need to start with this draft class in terms of building on their way on the road to that point. But like you said, getting more draft capital, getting more chances to hit on some of these guys and taking, you know, it, taking, you know, advice and, you know, tips from how the 49ers kind of built their team in terms of identifying specific traits for what they need them to do. This That's how it starts. And it's not going to get there in 2020, but this is a critical year for them to start that process. Yeah. And it just, I brought this, this page back up, this 49ers draft classes over the past three years, you know, I learned, some more about these uh, these guys from watching some of the, the the postseason games recently. But really where I want to focus, though, is round three and on. Um, you know, you look at you look at 2019 most recently, Mitch Wisnowski, their starting punter. Dre Greenlaw, a starting linebacker for them. Uh, you go to 2018, and by the way, those were their fourth and fifth round picks of 2019. You go to 2018, you look at uh, Tavarius Moore. He made some plays in the Super Bowl. Of course, uh, picked before him in the third round is Fred Warner, who was a star in the making. He had an interception uh, in the game. Uh, you know, you, there are other guys there that are, um, you know, kind of, I think Contavious Street maybe is still uh, is still contributing for them. You look at back at 2017, of course, Akella Witherspoon, uh, he started quite a few games. Uh, or played in quite a few games. You can see 36 games played so far in three seasons. Um, and he's been in and out of the starting lineup for them as a contributor. George Kittle, of course, probably the shining jewel of, of all of these picks in terms of value in the fifth round. Um, you know, so my, my point is, is they're hitting in all areas of the draft. It's right. not falling into a high pick. And yeah, you got your Bosa. And of course you're going to be good because you keep get these top 10 picks. Yeah, but they're doing well in the third fourth and fifth rounds finding star players and you know that's that's what you need if you're going to build 
your team and build it through the draft. You need to hit on days two and three because that's where the bulk of your roster is is usually created and the depth is usually created, and uh, the 49ers have done that. And, and one more thing, because we talk a lot about the 49ers, looking at the Chiefs, you know how they built that offense. They obviously invested a lot in the offensive line. They have a first overall pick at left tackle. They have one of the best right tackles in the game, in Mitchell Schwartz. They have an offensive line that cohesively works well together and communicates well with Mahomes when Mahomes breaks out of the pocket. And that's something that the Bengals offensive line needs to kind of build with Joe Burrow because Burrow's going to want to do the same thing. And all these quarterbacks coming into the league are going to try to emulate Mahomes and do their best to do so because, you know, they're not going to be able to make all those throws and not going to be able to move as well. That's something Burrow's going to want to, going to want to try to do. And and then it comes back to the receivers working back to the ball after they stretch down the field vertically. But just looking at that roster, it's a stacked offense that can outscore any defense. And sometimes it really has to, because looking at that defense that has some talented pass rushers and Frank Clark and Chris Jones, and it has a, a secondary that individually in terms of talent isn't very dense, but they have, they, they obviously work well as a unit because they got rid of a couple pieces and then you look at their biggest weakness, and it's linebacker. And like I know, there's a lot of Bengals fans, obviously, who are obsessing over getting a lot of talent linebacker. But when you have obviously talented pass rushers and that quarterbacks, and you have an offense that can outscore things, there are deficiencies that you can live with. And as we see with the Chiefs, who have the best quarterback in the game and a play caller that works well with them, th- 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 these are things that you can overcome. You don't need a completely stacked roster like we saw with the 49ers. It, it takes it, it, it's harder to find that quarterback, but if you can't find that quarterback. It is the route that you must take. It's the route. It's the quickest route to the the point of success that you're that you're trying to get to. So I think if you're comparing both teams to what the Bengals should emulate, it's obviously the Chiefs because they're going to have that chance to draft a quarterback that's better than Garoppolo, and they're going to have a chance to build to add more pieces to an offense that should already work well around him. It just takes a couple more offensive linemen, a couple of guys on offense staying healthy, and just rounding out whatever pieces they need on the defense. But it doesn't have to be this perfect, you know utopia of a roster that the 49ers are but it does it does take finding the right guys to fit the right needs and focusing on the right traits of draft prospects if you're not going to delve into free agency like both these teams i I, you know we're getting a lot of questions in the live chats about you know how many wins do you see the Bengals getting next year and and all of that uh, you know, I'm going to hold off on. We'll kind of maybe do some more win predictions. It's February, yeah, yeah. It's 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 too early, really. Um, and, and I think right now it's easy to sit here and be cynical based on what we saw last year. Uh, it's also easy to be optimistic based on the amount of injuries that we've seen from this team over the past couple of years, and and the fact that they have the high picks. Uh, I, I think you know, I, I'm going to hold off on on giving a, a win prediction as as the Bengals currently sit here. I, I did want to acknowledge that we've got a couple people talking about that and asking us about it, but um, you know, as of right now, it doesn't you know. This team isn't is probably still one of the worst teams in the league going into next year. But that's without a draft class. That's without free agency. That's without them potentially making moves in free agency. We don't know exactly what's happening yet. So give us maybe another month or two on that, and we can maybe more accurately answer that. I know. I know it is an interesting topic to talk about, but uh, you know, I, I think it's just it's a little early to before we sift through that um, and get a clearer picture of things, but. Interesting stuff and uh, enjoyable Super Bowl game uh, was was definitely entertaining and and really to be honest if you if you watched the NFL this year and you watched it regularly you followed it regularly those two teams really did deserve to be in the Super Bowl. Um, mm-hmm. I mean you can maybe make a case for another team or two, but um, you know San Francisco was consistent the entire year. Kansas City had a couple of dry dry spots, but. 
Uh, I think some of that coincided with the, with the Mahomes injury, but I mean, for the most part, they were explosive all year. They they came from behind throughout pretty much all of the playoffs and and won games. So I mean, really, both of those teams were the most deserving based on what we saw in 2019, and they gave us a pretty good game uh, uh, going forward there. So congratulations to the Chiefs as they are Super Bowl champions for the 2019 season. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. We've got more to get to. We're going to talk about some season awards as well as continue our 2020 prospect watch list. You can get this program on a number of platforms, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Megaphone, iHeartRadio. Did I say Spotify? I don't know if I did, but that's another one in there. And all of our content is on Cincy Jungle. Subscribe to our channels, leave us a rating, and try and join us live as we record. We usually record our episodes every Wednesday evening. Try and join us live if you're able. We also uh, do occasional, and I think we're going to do it this week, the listener questions program, usually Friday afternoons. So we will uh, try and get to that. So try and join us for that. If you are unable to join us for that live, submit your questions to us via email, call, text, all that stuff. We'd love to hear from you, and uh, we'll try and answer as many questions as we can on the air. But thanks for listening. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. John, should we transition to awards? Uh, sure, yeah. Let's, let's stay with the NFL for now. Okay. So we, we started a couple of weeks ago. We started the Cincinnati Bengals 2019 season awards. We did like offensive and defensive player of the year. We did coach of the year. We did a couple of uh, kind of the major ones um, for the season awards. We've got a few more to get to. By the way, these will also, we're doing a series post in which you can vote on for players on cincyjungle.com. So uh, myself, I think it's you as well, John, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe one other person there. I don't know exactly who it is that's that may be contributing there, but we're kind of splitting that up. And then you can vote uh, on cincyjungle.com. But we wanted to talk about a few of those here. Where, where did we want to go, John? Did we want to do uh, play of the year? Yeah, let's start, let's start with that. We're going to okay. do a play slash moment of the year because okay. there weren't a lot of great plays, but there were a handful of good moments. So I'll, 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 just, start, I'll just kick it off. You know, I'm going I'm to be a little partial because it was week one and I was there in person. Uh, you know, and there we had no idea what to expect from the Bengals mm-hmm. in 2019. And we we all kind of said either they're going to get throttled in Seattle or it's going to be dangerously close. They may even sneak out with a win. Well, lo and behold, the latter was true, and it was a very entertaining game. Part of the reason why is because the Bengals pulled out a lot of stops on offense. They did a lot of different things on offense, and many of those included John Ross. So I am going to go with the flea flicker play uh, in Seattle with John Ross. And by the way, that was really interesting. There were actually a little more cheers than I expected there because John Ross went to the university of Washington played in that stadium 
as mm -hmm. a collegiate athlete. So obviously he had some extra fans there as well. I know it's cliche. I know it's probably an easy route to go, but it's, it's kind of near and dear to my heart since I saw it in person. And, and, you know, it was, it was pretty interesting to see. It gave us hope as to, wow, this is, you know, this is what we should expect all year. This create these wacky plays that conservative Marvin Lewis never drew up. Uh, wasn't really the case. Um, kind of got a little different towards the end of the year, but for the most part, they had to re reel things in because of the injuries and whatnot. But uh, that I thought was kind of one of the moments or plays of the year. I, I agree with you with that sentiment because not, not only did it give give you know fans hope of what, what is to come, but it was just the fact that, you know, there, there was some quiet talk about this is like John Ross's breakout game because he's going back to Washington. And then it, it's almost, it's almost like, like people talk about separating like the game script from the rest of the game for an offense. And it was almost like, it, it was like a season script where it was the first half of that game was like the game script for the entire season. And then defense has kind of figured it out as it went on. But that play was so exciting. And I think it was, I think it was the second touchdown of the game, right? It was, it was the one yeah. where he was over two. Yeah. It was over two defenders, a little bit of, of an underthrown ball. But it was the moment where we realized like John, John Ross is here. And, he, and he's right. going to be the player that, that we expect him to be. That was the other element of it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and he was, I think for the first four weeks, one of PFF's like highest graded receivers in terms of yards per route run. And he was up there in terms of total receiving yards as well. So if he didn't get injured, it would be interesting to see if he would have even got close to a thousand yards. So I like the sentiment there. And I'm going to keep with that same sentimental factor because I honestly thought about listing that play as, as my one, but I'm glad you went first because I was going to go with the one that I, I decided to trump over that one. The exact opposite end of the schedule, week 17, in an actual win against the Cleveland Browns. Um, it was Joe Mixon's career day in terms of, of rushing yards. And it was almost like a flashback moment back to 2017 when the Bengals hosted the Browns. And it was late in the game. Joe Mixon took an inside rush, and he was ending up going to meet Jabril Peppers in the middle of the field, and he kind of bulldozed over him. And that was like a defining moment for, of his rookie season that year. And then in this game, to seal his, his career day in terms of rushing yards, a little inside zone carry against the Browns. Got a great block by Trey Hopkins and Michael Jordan. Then he met Sheldrick Redwine, the Browns safety in the Ooh. middle of the field, and just completely just trucked him over, ran for an additional 20 yards, got up, was so hyped. It was his last carry of the season is what, you know, um, solidified his incredible turnaround of the second year. It's what basically confirmed that the, the Bengals' second win of the, of the season. And it was just – it was so reminiscent of that first run two years ago where he kind of really planted his flag – as the, the star in the making and and just to see his growth, I think from the first two years as a guy who was solid, but was you know, not relying on his blocks, but didn't really do a lot on his own in terms of making guys miss and getting yards after contact. And that was such a shift um, from, from those first two seasons to the second half of this season when, you know, the offense really relied on him and basically put it all on his shoulders. And he really improved from an individual standpoint as a running back in terms of you know getting through the first level, making guys miss in the second level, and then that play was just such a defining moment for him in his season and going into a contract year. And obviously, it was against the Browns, and it was a, a, an exciting moment to watch. So I'm gonna go. That that was the moment that stood out for me. Yeah, you know, I, the the thing, and I think we're gonna go. Are we gonna transition to like performance, like single game performance of the year? Are we gonna do sure. that? One? Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, you know, the thing that that I, I really liked about the win against the Browns. Um, Granted, it, number one is it didn't hurt their draft stock at the time, so that's great. Mm -hmm. You beat a division rival, all that kind of stuff, but it showed the the fall from grace 
by the Cleveland Browns, everybody's offseason darlings. And it really kind of ended the season on a high note for the Bengals. Uh, really, really poor season. A lot of bad luck, a lot of injuries, a lot of all kinds of issues. And it was a good way to end the season, and Joe Mixon definitely carried that carried them for that. So I, I transitioning into single game performance of the year. I you know I think his that game has to be in consideration. You know his career high 162 yards, six plus yards per carry, two touchdowns, all that stuff. Who do you have for single game performance of the year? I'm going to go about a month earlier to their first win of the game or win of the season. And it's Carlos Dunlap's yep. performance against the New York Jets. Yep. Now, looking looking at his numbers from PFF, he had 11 total pressures, three sacks, three quarterback hits, five hurries, and then five defensive stops as a run defender. It was, I think, his third highest graded game of the season in terms of PFF numbers. And it was like he had a couple of good games be- uh, before this in the second half, but it was really the moment that we realized that this is a different level of, of animal that we're seeing from Dunlap because he's always been – dominant in spurts throughout his career but never really put together any sense of consistency over a single 16 game season that was kind of the the same motif that we were seeing for the first half of the season but his second half of 2019 was about as dominant as you could have seen from an all-around edge defender and i think the shift from you know being a a just primarily just a three down a a, a defensive end in a three-point stance to then transitioning into more of an outside linebacker role in louis in a room of scheme i think it really helped him, you know, diversify what he can do as a pass rusher. And I guess the Jets specifically, like, I remember the Jets looked like an FCS team that day. And, like, they just had literally no answer. Their tackles had no answer for Carlos Dunlap as a pass rusher. It was maybe his most dominant game as a pass rusher in, in his career. I don't think he had any pass deflections, any any of his traditional, um, you know, swipes at the line of scrimmage. But he was so dominant that game, and it really, it really said, like, wow, okay, this is a different level of Dunlap. And then he really carried that for the final four games of the year, he had a great game against the Patriots. He had, he had a great game against the Browns and to, to end the year out. So like that game was, was just another level of in, insane from a player that we see all the time, you know, throughout the season had these wild moments, but it, it was really the start of him putting together a lot of consistent dominance. And that's, you know, it's really what has hindered him from being in the conversation as one of the best defensive ends in the game. But that was such an incredible all around performance, albeit against a bad team, but, the, the dominance in that was is just hard to ignore. Yeah, the the really the second half of the season post by the Cincinnati Bengals had quite a few close games, a lot of good performances, and uh, it did give you it did give you a little hope going forward in terms of. I mean, you look at the Raiders game, you look at the Jets game, the Dolphins game. Really, the only two kind of eggs in there were it was the Ravens and the Patriots. Uh, both those teams made the postseason, so I mean. Granted, they played a lot of of the league's worst teams, but I mean, they got two wins and a lot of near wins there. So uh, Carlos Dunlap finished the after the bye in the eight games after the bye finished with eight sacks. So uh, that was just an absolute. It, it was probably the best game I've ever seen him play, and that's same saying something because he has played a lot mm-hmm. of good games. You know, Joe Mixon's performance in Cleveland definitely deserves to be in the conversation. But I'm going to go to the embattled quarterback. Um, there are a couple of instances, you know, I thought about the Jets game where Andy kind of played well. He had a couple of touchdowns that were dropped against the Jets by uh, Eifert and Uzama, uh, had the, the one touchdown and 243 yards, got the Bengals their first win, um, you know, 
basically since and came back and played pretty well for the first time since being benched in his first time ever in his career. He was benched. He played well there. Uh, but I look at the Dolphins game, man. Uh, 396 yards, four touchdowns. Granted, he was sub 60% in completion percentage, 104.5 rating. Um, I mean, they lost the game and the Dolphins weren't a good team, but the Dolphins were doing the same thing. The Bengals were at the end of the season. They kind of started riding some late season momentum. It was on the road. The Bengals were way down in that game. It was, it was pretty ugly. And he just kind of, there's no AJ green. Um, it wasn't the the all around most efficient game, but he was kind of doing it himself that day because the Bengals weren't stopping Ryan Fitzpatrick on defense. They weren't doing you know they weren't doing a lot of things right, but he kind of put them on their on his shoulders that day. And and again, he could have sandbagged it. He could have called it quits based on what happened this season, where the Bengals were and their record, and he put up one of his best statistical performances of his career. So. Uh, you know, in a year where it's easy to bash Andy Dalton and and rightfully so, and in a year and an off season where he may not even be on this team next year, I you know we got to give him a little props here. I think uh, with that performance, I, I you know close to 400 yards, four total touchdowns, um, 104. I think it was 104.5 quarterback rating. Uh, so I, I got to give him a little love on that in terms of an individual game performance. Um, obviously, the Dunlap and Mixon games are are in the conversation as well. The stats can almost be damned because, in a way, a lot of this like you would think that you know from how that game was going, a lot of the stats could be viewed as garbage time stats, but they really mm-hmm. aren't because because they went into overtime and they could right. have, they, they easy, very easily could have won that game. Right. I think like in terms of efficiency, like his, e, his EPA per play was like below average in terms of that week, so it wasn't like his greatest game, but just from an just from a, like an eye test, like you saw that that game for the the first quarter, whatever it it looked like the Bengals were tanking, it looked like they just quit. Right. And something flipped, and I, uh, you'd like to think that Dalton was the guy that said, "You know what? Screw this. I don't want. I don't want to go out this way. I don't want, you know, my legacy to be defined by this by how we quit this game." And it was really just there. There were a few moments in the season where you know he had a few moments where it, it just showed a different level of passion and different level of "I don't give a crap," you know, type mentality. And and he and he had that this game. And he made a he made a lot of good throws in in the end of the game. And again, it's against the Dolphins defense, whatever. And they were down by, you know, three touchdowns at a point. But it really showed that he didn't want to quit. And there, there, there's, there is something to be said about that. And I know that, I, like, you know, my, like myself, I would have preferred if, if they had lost that game in the first place. But, you know, even with, with how the result went, it's, it's good to look back at the game to see that, you know, their quarterback just didn't quit and didn't throw in the towel and, and didn't want to go out that way. And the numbers look good in the end. But you could just see that, you know, there was a certain – there's a certain passion in his eyes that you, you would like to see your quarterback, you know, for a, a franchise that has this reputation about it, you know, finish out his career with this team like that. And, you know, thankfully he got the win, you know, the next, the, the next week and went out on a, officially went out on a high note, but it was, it was kind of good to see in, in a sort of way to, to, for him to not throw in the towel. Like it looked like it was going to be for the first half of that game. Right. And uh, you know, no, not only no AJ green, no Auden Tate, um, so, you know, he's basically thrown to John Ross and a bunch of guys. Uh, I mean, the tight ends played a big role in everything and those guys are talented, but, um, you know, uh, the other thing too, is that it helped, uh, and we'll get to more awards here in just a sec, but it really helped put his potential trade value. Yes. I mean, I mean <laughs> you look at, you look at it, seven touchdowns, six interceptions since he returned, 
to the lineup after being benched, but four of those came against the Patriots. Four of those interceptions came against the, against the Patriots alone. He played, I mean, he had two games with zero interceptions and then he had one against the Browns. And then of course, against the Jets, he could have actually had two more touchdowns, should have had, could have, would have, should have had two more touchdowns there, if not for the drop. So, um, you know, I, I think that in that sense, it, that game also really helped the trade value potentially if the Bengals are going to move him. So, uh, you know, kind of a, a two-pronged approach there. And like you said, John, the reason I probably wouldn't have picked that one if the Bengals had lost that game by like 10 points or 14 points or something. But really, some of them were garbage time stats that turned into very, very important statistics as mm-hmm. the Bengals almost won that game. Where are we going next? Um, I honestly forgot what we were going to do for the final award. Do you remember? Uh, comeback. Comeback player. Comeback player of the year. All right. Um, I'll go first. Uh, this is kind of like not tongue in cheek, but it, it might it may not be officially. Yeah, you know, screw it. I'm going to go Carl Carl Lawson because he missed all. He missed half of 2018 with the torn ACL, and we've seen in the past like Giovanni Bernard is a good example about guys who tear their ACLs kind of late in the year, and you wonder. You know, how quickly are, are they going to come back into the fold? How quickly are they going to look like their old self? And with Lawson, I was very frightened about how, you know, their edge rushing group was going to look with relying on Lawson to be his old self because they didn't really add any additional talent besides Kerry Wynn, who went on IR like week four or five or whatever. So they were putting a lot of pressure on Lawson to be, you know, to be the same player that he was in 2017 when he was such a, a dominant force as a rookie. And the sack numbers weren't, weren't exactly there, only like five. But I think he came back about as well as he could have expected immediately. He had a, he had a quality performance against Seattle to open up the year. And it was kind of like Geno Atkins where he had a lot of quarterback hurries and he did a lot of damage in terms of disrupting the pocket, but it didn't exactly result into a lot of quarterback stacks and finishes and whatnot. But I think in terms of the pressure that they put on him coming back from an injury to really you know take the similar load in terms of snaps and, and in terms of responsibilities as a pass rusher, and he looked about as well as I think we could have expected coming off that injury. We would like to see more progress going into year four, obviously. And, and he could be a comeback player next year if he you know, performs even better, which if he's fully healthy, I think we fully expect him to do so. But I think also the scheme change also helped him out because he was now rushing more in two-point stances. And he honestly improved a lot as a run defender as well when he was in those situations where he can set an edge you know, you know, with, you know, in a two-point stance and whatnot as an outside linebacker. So the, the, the scheme change... For, for Louis and Arumo's defense going into a, more of an odd front look, it benefited Dunlap, it benefited Hubbard, and it benefited Lawson. And I think with him coming back the way he did off the torn ACL, obviously it wasn't a great year by any means. Obviously, you know, guys like Hubbard and Dunlap outshined him there. But for how disastrous it could have been in terms of their depth at edge rusher, with how Lawson played, with how he came back from the injury, I think he deserves some type of recognition there. That's a good that's a good one. It's a good one. You uh you served me up easy, dude. You really did. Uh, you know, there there are a couple of elements of criteria to a comeback player of the year. You know, oftentimes you think about injury. That's kind of the biggest deal. And then you come back from the injury and you play the, the player plays well the following year after a, a pretty big injury. Sometimes, as in the case of John Kitna in 2003, he won the NFL's comeback player of the year because he played so outstanding after a subpar year where he was kind of in and out of the lineup in 2002 and nearly led the Bengals to the postseason. Um, so it kind of depends on your definition of of what you what you want to give the award here. But I got to go with Tyler Eifert. I got to go with Tyler Eifert. Um, you know, played four games the year prior, 
We all know the injury history. I mean, one game in 2014, eight games in 2016, played in two games in 2017, four games in 2018. For the first time in his career, he played in 16 games last year. Now, granted, Mm -hmm. it was because they may have put him on a quote-unquote pitch count. They kind of moved him in and out of the lineup a bit, but he still contributed. Had the second most receptions he's ever had in his career with 43 had this the uh, third highest amount of receiving yards he's ever had with 436, uh, and had the third highest touchdown re- receiving touchdown total of his career with three. So he contributed even through all the offenses issues, through Andy Dalton's issues, them weathering the storm with a new coach, play caller, the offensive line problems. He still contributed. He played all 16 games. He, you know, finally leveraged himself on these prove-it deals. He finally gave himself a little bit of contract negotiation leverage this year. So good for him personally. Hopefully, you know, I kind of got a soft spot for the guy given what he's gone through and and what we've seen that he can do when healthy. He appears to like it in Cincinnati as well. So I kind of would like to see the team re-sign him maybe to a, you know, another short-term deal, not necessarily one year, but maybe a two-year deal, three-year deal, that sort of thing. If it's an incentive-laden thing, and he's he's open for that, but uh, I got to give him props. I got to give him props. You know, he uh, he suited up. He played well, and um, you know, uh, uh, there were times where you kind of wished he was in the lineup more in the in the goal line formations. I, he disappeared. They they had him out of the uh, out of the lineup a bunch of times. I don't really know what that was about. But uh, when his number was called upon, more often than not, he made some big plays and continued to look like the the, the pass catching threat that he has been for for a lot of years. So comeback player of the year for me is, is Tyler Eifert. And, and his whole situation was weird because you're right. Like there were times where you would like to see him on the field more. And that was in when seeing that it became evident that they were just using him on a pitch count throughout the season, you know, being Oh six and Oh, and seven and Oh, and eight be damned. They didn't really care at that point. They, like they, they still wanted to maintain a certain plan with Eifert and, and you know, it, it works for someone like him who, you know, can thrive in, in terms of situational, um, type you know uh, scenarios in terms of in terms of the offense where they are on the field, but it's almost like him being healthy and being consistently productive on the times he was on the field. It's almost like you know that goes against the Bengals' expectations, and now he might have played out of what, what they're comfortable giving him because if they give him a multi-year deal, they would be expected to play him more, and they could be you know less comfortable giving him more snaps because it's more likelihood he gets injured. It's a whole back and forth type thing that I think they're going to have to wrestle with in the next month before free agency begins. I wouldn't be surprised if he tests the market and another team throws a lot more money at him than at, than the Bengals would be willing to do. And I also wouldn't be surprised if, like you said, they give him some type of incentive-laden deal to you know stay in the tight end group. But it comes down to what they feel about your sample because they already have CG zone on a, on a multi-year deal. But I, I think for from Eifert's um, point of view, this was the best possible year he could have had. You know, to, to maintain healthy and to not you know practice all, practice for most of the week because he got a lot of practices off and to just be productive when when his number was called. And he's gonna he's gonna have the opportunity to make a lot of to make more money than he's ever had this offseason before he turns thirty. So definitely good for him. I'm glad to see it all worked out for him. Yeah, yeah, good guy too. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you've had any interaction with him, but I've I've met the guy. He's he's a, a really really good really good guy. Um, so could you know after all he's been through as well, you know, couldn't be happier that it's not an outstanding statistical season by any stretch, but you know, he 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 played pretty well. He played pretty well. 
So those are the awards for this week. I think John, unless I missed one that we wanted to, was that the last one? Uh, that, was, that was the last one. I, yes. I thought so. Yes. So uh, those are some of the awards. I don't think we have any more. We may, we may come kind of gets creative and, and maybe come up with a couple more if we want. But uh, for the most part, I think that is going to conclude the 2019 season awards uh, for us. We will be having these posts on cincyjungle.com as well, as I mentioned. Some of them will be different from the ones we've presented on this show, and they will have a voting poll option on there. So uh, definitely check those out. Leave your comments and sound off on your winner as well. And this is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast, as I've mentioned before. Get our show on any number of platforms. Leave us a rating. Subscribe to our channels. And check out the other podcasts, not only on the Orange and Black Insider, whether it's Matt Minnick's uh, Chalk Talk or... Orange is the New Black uh, on the on the Cincy Jungle podcast channel. Check that podcast out too. A lot of cool stuff going on there. And, uh, you know, we're excited about the the diverse group of, grouping of shows that we're bringing you guys. So hopefully you enjoy them as well. John, let's finish it up with our 2020 prospect watch list. We've done a number of different players. I've kind of focused, I guess uh, if you, if you watch my list, it's, it's uh pack 12 heavy. Uh, yeah. I watch a lot of pack 12 football. Um, and Hey, you know, I, I kind of hope that maybe a lot of people who don't listen or who, a lot of people who listen to this show do not watch pack 12 football because oftentimes their games are on late. So uh, you know, and, and I just, notice a lot of players while watching those games so i guess that's kind of what i bring to the table here but you have also been you you've been quite a bit more diverse in terms of where you've grabbed players and spotlighted them but really what we've tried to do in case you haven't heard this before not only are we looking at players that we specifically like uh and and intrigue us but we look at the Bengals' needs. We look at their trends and who they like to potentially draft, where they usually like to draft these guys, and where they may draft some of these guys in this coming class. So um, that's kind of where we built this list and compiled some of these lists of players. We've, gosh, I, I think we've at least gone through maybe six to eight players each now, John. We've, we've got a lot mm-hmm. each there. So uh, you have – I think we're going offensive line this week. So you have a specific interior offensive lineman that you wanted to spotlight this week. Yes, I was going to look at Solomon Kin- – I think it's Kinley. Solomon okay. Kinley or Kindly, the left guard from the University of Georgia. Um, I, I heard about him um, from my good friend Ryan Patrick, who is my guy in terms of identifying offensive linemen before I really get into the draft process. And he was really high on him, so I decided to give him a look. And he, he like me, has a little bit of a Georgia bias and – you know they they tend to they tend to produce good guys up front. So when watching him, the first thing you notice is he's pretty he's pretty big. He's like six four, three hundred thirty pounds, but he doesn't really move that way. And you know when when I was down the Senior Bowl, the, the thing I, I looked for in guards is how they moved laterally in terms of those zone concepts that Jim Turner was trying to employ in the practices. And you can get a clear sense about which guys are more comfortable getting downhill or 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 can also you know get into their drive step and get laterally and, and reach the guy's face. For, for being 330, 340 pounds, Kinley moves very well out of his stance. I think there's a lot of natural explosion there. There's not a lot of wasted movement in his steps. They, they do a lot of different things in that Georgia offense. There's a lot of power concepts, but there is a lot of, there, there's a handful of, of you know, there's a decent amount of zone in there as well. And I think he's pretty diverse and versatile in terms of his movement skills. Um, being 330 pounds, it should go without question. This anchor is very solid. You know, once he gets his hands on you, you know, it, there's not a lot of moving him backwards. So pass protection is very clean. The thing about his hands is that he has really quick hands, 
but they can get a little bit too high. And it, it's not it's not really a, a matter of leverage, it's just a matter of placement. Like you you would ideally want high or low and tight inside hands in terms of getting right into the sternum. With him, it's more of you know the quickness is fine he gets his hands on you really quickly but it almost gets too high almost up around like the neck area and when he gets that high he ends up almost having like chicken wings for for in, in his punches and his hands and his elbows and his arms get a little bit wide and you know dealing with college pass rushers and defensive ends they don't really have a lot of counter moves to kind of disengage but when you're facing a more adapt pass rushers with, who have plans to disengage from you you know, having, you know, your elbows and your arms not, you know, tightened inside, it can get you into trouble because guys can swipe away those hands if you don't have it in the correct spot. So that's something that he really has to work on in pass protection. And really in run blocking in general, you'd like to see better hand placement getting to his landmarks quicker because the athleticism, again, for his size is very good, but it's really just about the hand placement getting into those landmarks to really, you know, drive guys out or to reach guys and, and, and get them out of their spots in terms of zone. But, you know, th- that's that's really the biggest question mark I have for him because everything else, he moves very well. Obviously, you know, the, the quickness and the whole process, the beginning of his pass protection sets is very solid. When he strikes well, you know, and when he gets his hands on you in a good place, you know, there's really nothing you can do about it. And lastly, you know, you know, this is something that Ryan made sure I mentioned. He's a finisher, and he'll 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 drive guys to the ground on multiple on multiple occasions during the game. He's very active in pass protection, either passing guys off or picking up free rushers in, ter- in terms of zone bliss. So I think he's very cerebral in, in terms of working with his, his center and left tackle. He played next to Andrew Thomas, who's supposed to be a first-round pick. So he has chemistry, you know, working with guys of, of that caliber as well. I just think, you know, looking at when they drafted Andy Dalton, they took a they took a guard out of Georgia in the fourth round in Clint Bowling, who had positional versatility. Unfortunately, Kinley doesn't have that. I think he's been primarily a left guard throughout his career. But if they want to add a guard in between, you know, rounds three or five, or maybe, no, probably five is, I guess, you would say his floor. In that general range, a guy with a lot of experience, a lot of experience going up against tough competition, and a lot of the traits that you want offensive linemen to have getting into the league, I think Kinley has that in spades, along with plenty of size and more athleticism for a guy that you would expect with that size. So I think he's one of the more underrated offensive lineman prospects who is kind of getting outshined by some of these rising names at the guard position, but I think he's more of the more stable prospects that you could expect, and you can get him for decent value as well. So... Where do you see you see him at uh, probably a day three, high day three pick? Uh, yeah, I think I think fourth round is about where you would ex- where you expect him to go. I, I think depending on how he tests, he can maybe sneak into the third. It's very hard to project guys like that who aren't these these household names because you know guys get overdrafted you know every single year and just there's surprises with that. And uh, the fact that he comes from you know a program like Georgia who's produced a lot of good offensive linemen, the fact that he has. A lot of experience to him, and I think how, how he tests at the combine is going to really determine what his draft process is. Because character-wise, he's extremely clean. He's very, very much like Trey Hopkins, where you know it's it's just a very you know quiet guy. He doesn't really go out that much. Doesn't like to party. Just wants to you know practice on focus on football. Um, but also, I think it also come down to how people feel about his weight. Like in high school, he was apparently a 370-pound lifeguard who actually saved the life of a life of a swimmer when he was on duty. Now he's down to 340, 330 pounds. I think going down to 320 pounds can help him a lot too. So you see that that he used to be a lot more than than he was, and it it didn't affect negatively his strength, his play strength, but it did uh, increase his overall athleticism. So I think even cutting a little bit more weight could do wonders for him and potentially open up doors. You know, playing on both on both sides of the center and being you know adept in both zone and man scheme. So I think 
getting him down a little bit more in terms of weight can can do a lot of wonders for him. And and how teams see that he can do that will affect his draft stock, I think. So you know, Will Will Smith, uh, not the rapper and actor, uh, <laughs> in our live YouTube chat talked about how you know the Georgia line must have been amazing. I mean, the two tackles are going to be drafted probably within the first uh, four rounds, I would think. And then you're mentioning here the interior offensive linemen, a uh, lot of good players on that Georgia offensive line. We do know that that the Bengals like Georgia guys; they like them. There are uh, they have drafted quite a few players from Georgia. Uh, and, uh, granted that was Marvin Lewis era, but, uh, they have traditionally liked that and they like the SEC. They like the competition and the, and the talent level that's in the SEC. So do not be surprised if, uh, a Georgia player and one of these offensive linemen end up in Cincinnati. I'm going to go with another offensive lineman this time on the outside. And it is Austin Jackson of USC. I saw a lot of this kid because I watched quite a bit of USC football and, you know, I, I kind of look at other draft profiles. I kind of created my own on this kid, particularly in the final cu- couple of games of the season. But I, I really liked on the draft, uh, the draft network, Ben Solak. Uh, three words to begin the pros of this kid looks the part. And that's exact that. I mean, that just sums it up so eloquently. He's big, he's athletic, he's, he's not. If you look at a tackle and you kind of see he's not an Andre Smith build, right? Mm. I mean, he is long and lean and strong, and he is an athletic, well built, well put together kid at 6'6 and about 3'10, 315, depending on his playing weight, but um really ideal size, very good athleticism, and it's upside, upside, upside with this kid. It, it, and it's it's he's a junior. Um, so there are, are some potential development issues and you need to kind of be patient with this kid, but there is a lot to like about this kid. And I could see him being a target that goes in the top of the second round. Maybe even if pre-draft workouts go well, the combine goes well, he could sneak himself into the first round. If, if folks get enamored with his athleticism, with his build and see that they could develop him in uh, you know, at the next level, I, I think you could play him at either spot, at either tackle spot. I think ideally for the Bengals, you may want him to be your left tackle and you may want Jonah with the shorter arms go over to right. Um, that may not be the immediate plan. Maybe you stick with Jonah on the left and as, as this kid develops, maybe he's your right tackle, but this, he, he could be a guy that is a plug and play guy. He'll, he might take a few lumps along the way it may be a little rough going in the first part of his career because he is young because he needs development but i like a lot of what i see on out of this kid there's one thing that worries me about this kid and it was in the bowl game against iowa he got absolutely dominated by aj epinesa the the first round edge defender by iowa uh, I, I think he had a, a sack and a half or two sacks and and jackson was was uh, the guy that was blocking him, he got by him, caught him off balance, just really got it, just made him look kind of silly on a couple of occasions in that game. And what worries me is that that's the caliber of player he's often going to be facing in the pros. And right. I, I saw that same thing in Jonah Williams in the national championship game against the Clemson defensive line, where those guys all went basically in the first two rounds. 
Um, so I think it was Cleveland Farrell maybe that, that was, uh, that got past Williams in the national championship game a couple of years ago. That worried me a little bit with Jonah that this worries me a little bit with Austin Jackson, Jackson as a first round projected player, edge defender really kind of had him on skates in their most important, one of their most important games of the year, their bowl game. Uh, and really his most important showing of the year, the bowl game where a lot of the eyes were watching, um, I really thought that that game was going to be a little bit closer between those two teams because of where they were ranked and how they were playing. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, Iowa's defense made a lot of plays, including Epinesa against uh, against the Trojans and, and Jackson there. But I think this kid is a uh, – I, I see a lot of Anthony Collins in this kid, but but much higher ceiling. I see the athleticism. I see the versatility. I, I see a guy who's not a fringe starter like Anthony Collins, but I see I see a lot of similar traits where you go, if he was sitting, you're, you're saying to yourself, why isn't this guy playing somewhere along the offensive line? He's too good to be on the bench. Um, and I think that he he has a very, very high ceiling. Um, the, the floor could be a little low. Uh, you know, I think you just have to, you have to be patient with him. You have to know he's a little bit developmental and that's what you're getting with a a highly talented player. If you're going with him in the second round, maybe even if he slides to the third, I don't see that happening. But if he's, if he's in the second round, there's a reason for that. It's talent, but there are some concerns. I like him. I don't absolutely love him, but that's a guy that should be in the conversation. If the Bengals are looking at a tackle at number 33. That was my biggest concern with him as well. And I think Matt Miller of Bleacher Report had some comments on that where, like, you know, he, he, he's intriguing, but he, he he basically failed the biggest test of his career. And that's the one thing that you look at offensive tackles who don't go up against, you know, high-quality pass rushers that often. And I'll, I'll be, as, you know, Southern Cal is a good program, but they're not what they once were. And, you know, you know their their quality in, in terms of strength and schedule, in terms of the quality of talent that they play against, you know, their offensive lines, it, it kind of dwindles here and there. So, you know, he obviously failed that test against um, the the Iowa edge rusher, and that was a big red flag for me. And it's almost like you know you're dealing with an offensive tackle who has all the, who has all these physical traits, and but if, if he doesn't have the you know the technical stuff there, you know obviously he's not a first round prospect in that regard. And it's almost like how much do, are you willing to invest in terms of time and in terms of you know refinement in terms of getting him to where he needs to be in order to warrant you know a, a draft pick that high. And it's it's going to be a question of whether or not the Bengals want to draft. An offensive tackle that high, depending on how they feel about you know the right tackle situation with Fred Johnson potentially competing with Bobby Hart, and whether or not you want to move Jonah Williams to the right side. I think that when you have a, when you're dealing with a player like Jackson who has just as many question marks as he does, you know, positive traits in terms of what he could be, it's almost like yeah, it, it, it's 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 like you would want to draft him, you know, if, if he falls, not really take him before anyone else does. It's almost like you want someone else to really take that risk, but it really comes down to if. The coaching staff is committed to ironing out, you know, his, you know, deficiencies. Unlike what they were able to do with Cedric Boyhe and Jake Fisher, and obviously that was four or five years ago in a different regime. So it will depend on, you know, how Jim Turner feels about him, how Zach Taylor feels about him, if they're willing to invest in those positive traits to get out all the bad stuff right now. Because, like you said, he's very young; he's a junior, and he's got a lot of room to grow. And it really is about what their commitment is to getting him to where he needs to be. Because I don't know if I trust him starting over even a guy like Bobby Hart with, with where he is right now. But I, I think he's the type of player that the Bengals would be interested in, in investing in. It just wouldn't be, I guess, that early in the draft. 
Yeah, uh, it would it would need to be you know maybe he falls to the top of the third and they and they haven't grabbed a tackle yet and this is too good to pass up type of thing. Um, this isn't a finished product like like Tyron Smith from USC years ago. This is that who was a top ten pick of the Cowboys. This is a guy that that needs some work. Did do you think he's better than Chuma Doga from last year? I, I think he has higher upside. Um, okay. I, I had Chu. I, we talked about Chuma Doga on this show last year, and I I had him kind of third roundish. Um, maybe fourth round. And I, I think he went in the third round. Did he not? Yeah. Um, for the jets. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think did that was more a little bit better. Chuma Adoga was a little bit more polished, but didn't mm-hmm. have the athleticism and raw ability as Jackson. Uh, Jackson has the raw ability, but I think needs some, some coaching and whatnot to go going, going forward. And, and who knows, you know, like I said, this could be a guy that teams, somebody falls in love with maybe a Pete Carroll towards the back end of the first with the Seahawks. They need offensive line help. Maybe he's like, that's a guy I want. Uh, Cause he's obviously well tapped into USC. Or maybe he's a guy that everybody's like, this is this is too risky, this high. We got to wait. And maybe he's there at the at the top of the third, and all of a sudden the value's there. So, um, you know, I, 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 it's it's intriguing to me where he's going to land. But uh, he he has the athleticism, he has the size, like I mentioned, and like Ben Solak mentioned of the Draft Network, quote unquote, looks the part. That's exactly the thing. What you don't know is if he, you know, looks like Tarzan, plays like Jane, or or what have you type of thing. Uh, hopefully, he's he's a guy that that with some coaching, with some grooming, ends up become you know becoming a very good offensive lineman, but an intriguing guy nonetheless. So those are our two prospects this week. We'll continue our 2020 prospect watch going forward, and uh, I'll try and branch out away from the the Pac-12 if I'm able. Uh, but well, I'm not going to branch in, so feel free to you know, <laughs> stick to your niche. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, those are those are our two guys this week, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed the 2020 prospect watch. We're gonna do. Uh, I don't know what we we always say final thoughts, but I feel like that's so cliche maybe curtain call i don't know what you want to call it, but uh you know we we kind of sometimes at the end of the show kind of try and collect some thoughts and and give give a little nugget of info or whatever to send you off with there's some talk in the live chat there's been a lot of talk on radio row this this past week before the super bowl and on twitter on radio shows all uh all kinds of different chatter about Joe Burrow, Carson Palmer, people warning Joe Burrow about going to Cincinnati, being the top pick, all that kind of stuff. It's ranged from Solomon Wilcox, who was on, uh, what is it, Amendola, or what's that? Uh, I always think it's I always think it's Danny Amendola. I know, but it's not. I know. (laughs) Uh, He's he's with CBS Sports. You had uh, Carson Palmer join I think it was Dan Patrick. You had Joe Burrow also on the Dan Patrick show and Dan Patrick, who was an Ohio native kind of just trying to almost dissuade Joe Burrow to go going to Cincinnati, or at least warning him about the pitfalls of Cincinnati. You've got Carson Palmer chiming, chiming in. You've got all kinds of stuff. And it really has come to the, to a head over the past couple of weeks. Granted, his father, Jimmy Burrow, has kind of said, I don't know where this is coming from. He's not, he's just happy to be the number one to the top pick in the draft or a high pick in the draft, that sort of thing. I'm pretty sick of the chatter, John, namely because it's like, when can we have something nice? Right? <laughs> we, we, the, the Bengals have sucked. They sucked last year. 
It was a rough season to not only do this show, but to write about, to watch the whole thing. And you suffer through that to get the top pick and you, you think you have a franchise changing player pot- potentially heading to the Bengals with the number one overall pick. And instead of just kind of savoring that moment, we're hearing a lot of talking heads saying, don't go there. Don't go there. You're not, you're, you're going to be unsuccessful. there." pretty disheartening. Like, all right. We, we haven't, we don't, we don't hear about this with other quarterbacks going to like, if there's a if there's a consensus favorite to go number one overall, and he's a quarterback, he's he's going to go to a bad team. He's going to go to a team that's not right at the moment set up for success. This is not anything new, necessarily. Like Andrew Luck did the same thing with the Colts, um, the the Rams. At, you know, the Rams and the Eagles were both pretty bad. You know, they weren't as bad, but they were pretty bad when they drafted Carson Wentz and um, Jared Goff as well. Like the Browns were the Browns, and they drafted Baker Mayfield, but we didn't hear anything about those guys shouldn't want to go to those franchises. And it's different this time because while Bengals fans like to point to the Browns as the epitome of, of of an awful franchise and the franchise that'll never get better with the Bengals, it's different because the perception is that they don't try to get better. And there's, and there's a difference between, you know, being bad, but trying to do different things every single year and, you know, changing ownership and changing coaches staffs with the Bengals. It's a level of gross complacency that has really marinated into the national media and has, has created this perception that they're just never going to be, be anything more than what they are because they're not willing to take the steps necessary to get there. And that's the narrative and the message that Carson Palmer has been trying to explain when he's been asked to talk about this. It's what Solomon Wilcox, Wilcox vouched for. It's what Dan Patrick's been consistently pushing on his radio show. And you just don't hear about those other franchises because the Bengals are a different level of historically bad because They've had the same ownership for the past 30 years, and they've shown no progress in, in, in making any of it better. But with the Bengals, I think they're the best team to kind of handle all this because they're not gonna they're not gonna sway, they're not gonna cave under the pressure of all this media coverage that they have. They're gonna stick to what they do best, and that's just not talk. And I think that's what the Burroughs appreciate about this the most because there's a direct line of communication between the Burroughs and Zach Taylor with like with the Nebraska connection, and I'm sure that the organization has reached out in some capacity to the family and said, none of this noise means anything. And I think the boroughs with what they've said in regards to all this noise has kind of encapsulated, you know, the fact that, you know, none of this means anything. This isn't coming from us. And I think they appreciate the fact that the Bengals aren't commenting on this and they're not the team that would, you know, be inclined to comment or, or, you know, disprove any, any of this. They were just going to stick their hands in their pockets and they're going to make, they're going to make the choice to draft borough. And I think that they appreciate that subtlety and that and that mindset that they have. And that's why this isn't going to go the way that the national media wants it to, because they're they're feeling this fire of this narrative to try to create some noise because everybody knows this is a, this is an, an inevitable thing. The, the Bengals are going to draft Burrow, and there's only so much you can talk about, you know, when you cover all 32 teams about something that's for sure going to happen 78 days from the future. So yeah, I, I understand why people are talking about this because it is something to talk about. It does get clicks. It does get two knuckleheads on a Bengals podcast talking about it for 10 minutes or whatever. But at the Be end of the day, it, yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything and, and it will continue to not mean anything. And will and when the draft comes, it will officially mean nothing because it's not going to dissuade the Bengals from making this decision. They're not going to cave under this pressure and they're not going to, you know, ruin a relationship with Burrow because they've never done anything like this before and and they won't start now. The surprising thing to me, John, was the Solomon Wilcox thing. Um, 
Solomon Wilcox has done things. He, he like Anthony Munoz, still works for the team in the preseason games. I think he's kind of one of their sideline guys now because he's no longer with CBS. Um, and truth be told, I have really enjoyed Solomon Wilcox as an announcer, as an analyst, uh, as a personality in, in the sports world. Uh, he, I, I really liked his career. He's just kind of a you know an underdog kind of guy who – um, made a name for himself. I remember, you're probably too young to remember this, but when the Bengals were making the transition from Dick LeBeau to Marvin Lewis and they and they had a, a big decision to make with their coach and what they were going to do with their number one overall pick, a lot of people, and the, the Cincinnati Inquirer published these, wrote public letters to Mike Brown about pleading to him about what he should do in terms of a coaching decision and what he should do with the number one overall pick. And Solomon Wilcox was one of those guys. Um, and I found it very interesting that he sided with the guy who is completely at odds with the owner. Um, mm -hmm. And a guy that Solomon Wilcox and, and a team that Solomon Wilcox has kind of identified with still kind of works for them in some capacity. I, I just found that very interesting and a little disappointing, not, not disappointed. I'm not disappointed in Solomon Wilcox. I'm disappointed that there's a guy who has an inside perspective, a guy who has been there, done that. And he is still jumping on this bandwagon. The other big issue I have with this, John is, you know, you, I kind of optimistically think when the Bengals, if, and when the Bengals draft Joe Burrow, number one, overall, I'm thinking, hey, you know, a lot of the talking heads are, are going to say this is the right pick. This is the guy that's going to turn around the franchise and all that stuff. I almost wonder that it's going to get worse in late, <laughs> a, late April, early May in this in, in this regard than it is now. I, I think that I think that there's going to be like, ah, oh, they, they're going to ruin him. He's going to he's going to want out after four or five years. Blah 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 blah. Uh, you know. I don't. I, I guess, like you said, and like some people are saying in our in our live chat, I don't remember a team having a number one overall pick having such a talented and highly touted guy that they are poised to take at number one overall. I, I don't remember a team being raked over the coals this way, and maybe it's deservedly so because of what the Bengals have done to former players, the lack of success, and all of that. It, it's just they've turned this narrative on its head and it's, it's pretty surprising. Like th there are ingredients to fuel this fire and I understand where they are acquiring these ingredients and where they are making this fire and, and, and whatnot. I just think because we haven't seen something like this since Andrew Luck in terms of a consensus where there's no, there's no discussion. Like there honestly, like all this talk about, you know, that the Bengals are going to ruin Burrow has kind of united the fan base from the days where people were still stupidly talking about drafting Chase Young first overall instead of Burrow. It's kind of united all the fans to want Burrow and to realize that that's the decision that they, that they need to make. So it's almost like the conversation shifted entirely from one degree of cancer to this other degree of even bigger cancer in terms of what the media is saying. And I don't, I don't really blame Solomon for what he said because I think that there is like I, I'm still someone who supports Carson and still believes what he says, and I think that Wilcox understands, you know, what what Carson was feeling in in terms of how you know th things ended with with him in that regards. And I don't think he was discrediting the Bengals specifically. It was more of uh, it was more of just a realization of why an organization can't put it all on the quarterback. This is what happened to me. That's right. I mean, that's that's what he was kind of saying. This is what happened when I was there. 
Right, right. And yeah, like I, I think it was more of a, a general statement about how teams should handle, you know, bringing a quarterback into the system and whether he was, you know, either pessimistic if the Bengals are going to are going to be any different or do the same thing in that regard. But obviously he has a close relationship with Palmer and I, I wouldn't expect him to completely betray his friend in that regards. But like you said, he, he, is, he still works with the Bengals in some capacity. So for him to be that unequivocally in agreement with Palmer was a little bit shocking. But again, this is just, you know, they're going to run with this as long as they possibly can because they really have nothing else to talk about with this pick because it's the pick that's going to be made. And when they do it, and when they do, and when the pick does happen, they announce and they analyze it. They're not going to say the Bengals made the wrong choice. Like they're not going to say that they shouldn't have taken it because he's going, because they're going to ruin his career. Like this is the only choice that they have to make. And this is what they have to talk about until then, because they have nothing else to talk about. Yeah. Maybe this is just unfamiliar territory for us because we've we, we never experienced this much exposure yeah, before. Right. And, and, you know, last year, maybe, maybe Cardinals fans felt like, God, they're piling on Kyler Murray because he's short and he shouldn't be the pick. You know, <laughs> maybe the Rams and Eagles with the Wentz golf discussion and, and all of that, maybe that's what they were experiencing then. I don't know. I, you know, I guess we, we just haven't really been in this position. The bottom line is this. And I know that you, you mentioned that the Bengals are very good at tuning out exterior noise, crawling in their shell and not really addressing criticisms, not really addressing certain organizational issues and, and whatnot. This, this is a public challenge to the team, whether they want, whether they want to admit it or not. I mean, this is a public challenge by media, by players, by former players, all this kind of stuff. This is a challenge to say, look, you've got a golden ticket. You've got Willy Wonka's golden ticket here, right? I mean, you don't screw this up. Don't screw this up by being who you were in 2002, 1994. Don't be that team, right? Be the team that if you're going to pick this guy, yeah, he can change your franchise, but he's going to need help. And learn from what happened with Carson Palmer. Move on and and be a modern franchise. They have, they're, they're at a crossroads to do that. It, it, and it's going to take a major shift in terms of who they've been but this is this is kind of a public challenge to the team, and they could say, "Oh, we don't listen to." It. I mean, even Duke Tobin, when he spoke with you guys, was kind of like, "Ah, oh, well, you know, reports are reports, and all." You know, they could say they don't listen to it; they hear it, and they, yeah. it's come across their desk. They know about it, so this is kind of a public challenge to them. And I hope they they answer the challenge. I hope that they. Um, it doesn't mean they need to be the absolute most active team in free agency. It doesn't mean they, they need to do all kinds of wheeling and dealing on draft days, but some, and they need to do, they need to beef up their staffing. They need to empower their coaches. They need to empower their scouts. We know all the stuff they need to do things differently and maybe drafting Joe Burrow and having a number one overall pick is kind of the impetus to that. We will see. That was a long curtain call but uh a good one i you know i was thinking john i'm like ah oh, we won't go we will last couple episodes we've gone an hour and 20 we've gone an hour and 15 we're not going to go there here we are an hour and 20 again oh well oh well what are you going to do <laughs> uh anything else before we get out of here man nah man i think I, I think we uh talked we talked our heads off tonight yeah we, we, we deserve a break we did we did yeah uh Get our show on any number of audio platforms and on YouTube and CincyJungle.com. Subscribe to the channel so you get alerted to when we go on the air live and or when new content is streamed on those channels. Check out all of our content. Leave us a rating, hopefully a good one if you are so inclined. 
Check out the other podcasts in our network, Matt Minnick's Chalk Talk, as well as Orange is the New Black with Zim Hude and Ace Boogie. And some people are asking about the draft. I may be going, folks. I may be going to Vegas, so and I may be broadcasting from the show there. So Hell, I will, yes. I will please, I will I will from like a pool or a casino or something or a strip club or all the above. <laughs> Uh, I don't think the latter's happening, but, uh, you know, uh, pool and casino and all that stuff might be happening, but I will let you know if I'm there, I would love to meet all of you or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And obviously hang out with you with the draft festivities. We're going to, we're trying locking down some interviews and all that kind of stuff for the weekend, but I gotta, I gotta lock down my travel plans, but I will for sure let you know as to what's going on with that. And, uh, even if we don't go, Strictly to Vegas, we will be covering quite a bit of the draft on our show. Check us out for the listener questions this Friday. We'll probably be coming at you midday Pacific time, so get that on there. And if you subscribe to our channels, you'll get the notification as to when we're going live. So check that out. We will see you soon. For John Sheeran, I'm Anthony Gazenza. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.